Open Nesters podcast is a weekly podcast that explores new ways of living as our kids leave the nest. Now in season three, the podcast topics go deeper and wider in interviews with individuals, couples, and experts in areas ranging from relationships and families to adventure, spirituality, and sexuality. This week on the Open Nesters podcast with Kevin and Antoinette Patterson. Kevin is an author of a book you'll hear about, and he and his wife have such interesting insights, like deep insights that we can all learn so much from. So I hope you'll listen up to this incredible interview. Let's hear it from Kevin and Antoinette. Welcome to the Open Nessus Podcast, Antoinette and Kevin Patterson. So we are very, very honored and excited because you bring a great dimension of showing up in a way that not that many people can and have taken that huge responsibility of in the Black community and as Black polyamorous people and as this, these, and, you know, we are so learning all the time and you help people do it without, without making them feel terrible, but helping them grow into their ability to show up as well by you showing up. Hey, thank you. Thank so you. I, I really want to thank you for that deeply. Yes. Yeah, that was pretty awesome when you say it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, I the his Kevin's book, Love is Not Colorblind, really captured my heart and really attention in so many ways. And I got the book because I'm dating a man um who when he heard that I had tried to reach out to Kevin Patterson, he said, I have the book. You gotta read it. You gotta reach him. And and he gave me his book, and I, you know, I think I had tried online different other times, but this time it worked. And you're here, and you're also, from what I've read and communicated with you a bit, almost open nesters, as we call this stage of life. So, <laughs> can you give us a little background on that? <laughs> Do we have to define open nesters for you? Yeah, please. Okay, so open nesting is the opposite of being empty nester. It is, does, does not mean that your nest is full. It means that your kids have now left the nest, and now it's you and her, and her and you. And basically, you are two people together trying to figure out chapter three of your life without the kids, and now you open. You're not open only in, uh, you're open to new possibilities, you're open to new career, moving, uh, traveling, you moving to new adventures, opening their relationship. It doesn't really have to be one thing or another, but it is that stage of life where kids have left the nest and now you are an open nester and now you are... Or dreaming of open nesting. Or dreaming and open nesting. I can't (laughs) wait for all of them to leave the house so I can have sex in every corner of my home without interruption or whatever that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you need to do. Like our, our nesting stage, our kids are our kids are right now tweens. Um, so they they are still they are still at home, but yeah, we we are definitely waiting for that day where where we can sort of uh, reclaim the space, you know. Right. So that's exactly. So you are dreaming on an open nesting, and yes. that is the stage that you are. How far are you from that moment? Well, where does the first one go to consider going, you know, leaving? They Sometimes they stay. But when's the first one? 18, for example. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we've got about um, a, a little more than five years left on on one of them. Uh, but, you know, we, we're, we're definitely in a place where they might leave. They might stay. They might go to trade school. You know, who who knows? 
Right. Well, we have our 24-year-old home, so we don't call the nest. It has to be empty. We just look at this stage as transitional for the fact that we are communicating clearly our needs at this stage of life. And that openness facilitates their ability to also grow into what they want to become. And that's a big part of what we try to teach in a lot of our interviews and with experts. And and um, and so so you guys have been together. Give us a little bit of your Antoinette. Why don't you give us the summary of how long you guys have been together and when you when you opened your you know became part. You always ask me for the numbers. I oh. am not the memory of the relationship. <laughs> numbers? You ask it for numbers? Uh, so we started dating in oh two. See, and I was going to say, oh, one. See, I was adding on to it. In 2002, we met at Howard University where we both went for undergrad um, through a mutual friend. Um, and it was one of those situations where somehow we had been circling the same spheres and we knew a lot of the same people, but didn't meet um, until, you know, a weird one-off connection, um, at which point um, he forgot who I was. <laughs> we will never let him forget that. <laughs> so I ended up seeing him later on campus. He had totally forgotten who I was. Um, meanwhile, he had sent through our mutual friend the best, absolute best. Let me give you my number gift um, in which he had made a, um, a mixtape of all rare and unreleased Prince music. Uh, and which is that's my favorite artist still my favorite artist um and he had sent that along through our mutual friend as, that i literally got it right after i ran into him and he forgot who i was wow wow wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible with names and faces so like you know me me handing off the mixtape like hey make sure you get this to your friend hopefully she'll call me and then I ran into her and yeah, I drew a blank. I drew a complete blank. I didn't know who she was. I didn't know why she was talking to me. I didn't remember her name. Um, it wasn't until like halfway to the conversation. I'm like, oh, wait, this is the one I just made that mixtape for. Wow. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I recovered though. Like, Did you make one or did you make a couple of hundreds of those mixtapes? You know, I wish I wish I could say that I was a player enough that I could have made dozens, but no, I was really enamored and I made the one. But my 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 poor my poor um remember my poor memory for names and faces completely overrode me being enamored with this new person. How on earth, uh, not related, you got some rare recordings of Prince? Um, the, the internet is a wonderful place. And at the time, I was really good at finding them. Wow. Okay. So a lot of them were things that were released in Europe, you know, rare B-sides and live performances. Mm -hmm. He actually managed to find a good number of things that I didn't already have. So I was impressed. <laughs> so so you're so well, I'm skipping way ahead. So you're you got you had kids. Uh, we're not going to ask you how you did that. You had kids and you raised them together and obviously at some point became polyamorous. So we'd love to hear that story as well. Whoever would like to tell that. Before we had kids, like there was a, 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 a trip that my, a trip that me and my friends used to take every year to Toronto. The first weekend in August, they have this big Caribbean festival called Caribana. And that was just like a trip me and my friends would take. And then one year, most of my friends just couldn't make it. So I had just started dating a new woman, um, Antoinette. 
And I was like, well, hey, I'm going, I want to go on this trip. Do you want to come with me? Do you know anyone who'd want to also come, come along? And she ends up inviting like one of her best friends. And somewhere along the line, I just sort of made a joke, like uh, a little, like maybe a couple of weeks before the trip. I'm like, you know, it's a lot of, lot of party and a lot of, you know, sexually active young people drinking and smoking. Anything might happen. Ha ha ha. And it ended up kicking off conversations about what would happen if something happened. And How all I heard like, was, yeah. yeah, and like all I heard was, there's a possibility of a threesome here. That's the only thing that filtered through my brain. And I'm like, I don't care if it busts up this relationship. I got to go for it. I got to make at least the attempt so I'd have the story to tell my friends. And like, that was the mindset of me 20, 20 something years ago. And next thing you know, like, you know, um, we just found ourselves with some quiet time uh, away from other people and a bunch of things happened that turned into a, a pathway into non-monogamy. And so the pathway was something that you both studied right away or you just experienced on your own and then... They, were, they stumbled about, upon it. Stumbled upon it. Stumbled right. upon it. Initially, it was very much us stumbling oh, yeah. gloriously <laughs> um, and making many, many mistakes because we just really didn't know any better. <laughs> um, at that time, it was... A situation of feeling we weren't connected with any community you know we were we were just all oh, those that those those weird couple that that does things and they have threesomes but they actually like talk about it and you know <laughs> they're not just cheating like everybody else um so we were the odd couple in that regard um and it wasn't until we came back to the philadelphia area um that i was through a very, very random connection, um, put in touch with the local polyamory community here. It was a situation where, because we were still actively dating other people, even though we were committed and at that point, I think just engaged. Engaged, yeah. Um, I remember it was okay, Cupid, And a random gentleman reaches out to me and he goes, so I'm reading your profile and everything you're saying is saying polyamorous, but you never say that you're polyamorous. And I'm like, what's polyamory? run to the Google machine. Um, at which point I'm like, wait, there's a name for this weird thing that we're doing. We're not just weird. <laughs> we are weird. It's not because of that. Great. Um, and then that gentleman ended up, you know, pointing me, we friended me on Facebook so that he could add me to a couple of Facebook groups um, and pointed me towards some meetup groups and then unfriended me. And I never heard from that human ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but he connected you uh, to well, some community. We call it thin thread that like connected you to that, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. And then that's the point where we actually started being a lot more purposeful in how we yeah. were navigating. Um, that's when we started reading all the books and like listening to all the podcasts, going to different meetups, meeting people, having to, going to discussion groups, and so on. And how about the kid stuff? Because a lot of, I mean, a lot of poly people, at least the ones that we see around in this generation now are not having or not with kids and and how has that been for you as a couple that does have children and then how have your children been integrated into this this journey well when we first got started like we just thought it was we thought it was a temporary thing we thought it was going to be sort of a phase and so we had all these 
off ramps built in where like okay well once we move away from you know the dc area where we met we're gonna knock it off and then we didn't then it was you know once we get engaged or once we get married we're gonna knock it off but then we didn't and by the time we had kids it didn't make any sense to us to sort of cut out people who in our lives who up to that point had been like valuable people in our lives so once we had kids it was like well this is just who we are now and and I think what was helpful too was that once we got in touch with the greater polyamorous community, was actually meeting other polycules who had children and who were navigating it. And so then at this point, it became oh, so it is possible to do both. You know, I remember it was, and I'm blanking on their names unfortunately, but it was a woman who was married, legally married, and then also had another partner, and they had houses that were right next door to each other, and they had two sons um they had three sons three sons yeah but here here they are with this polyamorous arrangement with three kids and it was just like wow this is a thing that can be done amazing yeah yeah and so it's something that our kids have always grown up around um they understand that you know mom and dad have lots of different other people in their lives but like you know we keep everything very age appropriate but there's there's no there's no lying there's no hiding or anything of what we're doing with our kids they they're well aware we just keep things age appropriate and so sleepovers or anything that they that they you know can sense or know that there's sex sexual activity how 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 the conversations how have you helped that it's always worth i think asking each person how they help navigate that well, I mean, we don't really have, I mean, the conversations that we have with our kids about, about, uh, sex and sexuality are more general, more education-y than like, than, than personal because like, I don't want to know about, like, as far as I'm concerned, my parents only had sex twice and I don't want to hear, you know, for like one, once, once, once birthing me and once birthing my sister, I don't need any other details. So mm. you know, we, we definitely keep that stuff a- a- away from the kids because like that's, those aren't, those details don't belong to those kids um but they do pick up on the familiarity between people like there was there was at least one point where you know i was dating somebody for a while and like my my older daughter sort of waited until i wasn't in the room and then just sort of came up to that that person and said like hey uh are you in love with my dad do you love my dad because like she could pick up on the familiarity there you know so like we keep we keep it honest like hey this is somebody who i'm you know who i'm partnered to this is someone who i'm dating but anything like beyond that we um that's that's none of their business right love and dating is sometimes pretty much a lot too so for them it's not because they saw it naturally it seems you know, a lot of yeah. people have a hard time with saying love and dating, not just sex, but obviously the the timing of each child, I think, at the, as they get older. And we've talked about this on the podcast. When's the right time to have that conversation that's about love, dating or sex, like any intimacy about beyond a monogamous world that we live in? Yeah. I mean, and like what I, what I would say is like everybody should 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 be honest because like when when you're an adult you're not asking for permission from your kids you're you're letting them know you're keeping them in the loop because a lot of times kids will pick up on what's going on and if you're not telling them about it they'll process it without context where we had a we had a couple of friends who had kids 
who hadn't, you know, they they didn't tell their kids um, that they were non-monogamous. And then they ended up finally eventually breaking it to the kid, like at age 15 or 16. And the kid was just like, oh, thank God, because I thought you were just cheating on each other. Like the kid picked up on what was going on, but just didn't have the context to to process it properly. So we, we try to cut that out we we try to be as honest as we can you know while still like i said keeping it age appropriate and a lot of that is is really just addressing and deep trying to deprogram our children because what they're taking in is overwhelmingly heterosexual and overwhelmingly monogamous everything from disney princesses you have to find your prince charming and there was only one and so it's forever this constant deprogramming this okay well if your one happens to be a girl instead of a boy that's good like or if you decide that maybe it's two or three that's good and letting them know along the way that it is okay um and so giving our children that that freedom and also the language with which to discuss these things of you know it's a spectrum and these are all normal and this, and there, there are some things that are not acceptable in any context. And then there are things that, it's, again, it's all a range of what's okay. Yeah. Thank you, Antoinette, I mean, for that distinction. In, in, in that journey, the scrumptious journey that you have experienced over the past uh, 20 years, have you got to a point where there was something that was challenging to your relationship to the point where you said, this is not going to work for us, or something else stopping you from... Uh, really continue the bond, the beautiful bond that you two has between the two of you? There was anything that challenged that bond over the past year due to polyamory relationships? What I'll say is this, um, like we've, we've definitely had our trials and tribulations. There, there have definitely been times where we weren't on the same page. We weren't really seeing eye to eye. Um, the polyamory was never the fault of it. The polyamory sometimes exposed it in that like, and and this is and not just with Antoinette, but like my other relationships as well. There are times where person A is treating me away and it makes me uncomfortable and I can't figure out why. And then person B treats me some better way. And I'm like, oh, that's why I'm having this problem. Like the polyamory just exposes what was, you know, um, sort of the things that I want, the things that make me feel, you know, loved and respected and and um and not just sort of like, you know, tolerated. I'm not just like a warm body who's who 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 fits a position. Polyamory will yeah, poly, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. We all like to be cherished. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And polyamory will would often expose that. But uh, it's it's rare that that's the problem, you know? Polyamory mm-hmm. has never been for me a negotiable piece. And so conflict that has come up has been more, I'm not a fan of who he might be dating currently. <laughs> currently um, or he may not be a fan of who I, of who I am dating currently. Um, but polyamory has never been something that's been an option to come off of the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like neither one of us ever, like neither one of us ever said like, Hey, have you considered going back to monogamy? Uh, At this point, I feel like it doesn't make sense to either one of us in in, in our lives. So instead, we have to like sort out our problems, like just like every other couple, uh, you know, on a one to one basis, figuring out, you know, 
how, what, how much of our problem is a real a real thing to be solved? How much is fear and insecurity that needs to be like you know um, really confronted? And 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 how much is just something we could ignore and move on from? I mean, was there any time that there was a deal breaker that if you continue to date here, I cannot do this anymore? Type of a deal? Was anything like that ever happen? She has I a don't big think smile. So. There was someone that came very, very close to that. <laughs> okay. But that situation took care of itself. So it. okay. <laughs> I was never forced to make that ultimatum. But oh, it good. Yeah, patience and love. We had one of those situations, too, also that took care of it. It was, it was kind of toxic for him, and I knew it, but eventually it took care of itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to say is that I spoke to another polyamorous man recently. He was a much older gentleman, and he was talking about consent. And we use that word so often versus um, consensus. And sometimes, why are we giving, you know, Kevin, you just said it, why do we have to give permission all the time? It's a matter of how are we holding each other? How are we finding consensus? And and that's just an interesting learning. And, you know, the fact that you, the way you've kind of defined all this is that we're all on a spectrum of learning. And and so that's why I was excited to have you on this podcast, even if you're really not quite at the stage of open nesters, because after reading the book, I was like, well, we really need our audience to really understand how to learn more about what's this world, how this world can really be defined and seen through eyes of people who have really had to had to fight much more for this, for their freedom and their rights, and they're not feeling marginalized and and or tokenized or eroticized or fetishized, fetishized and all the things that I mean, we don't we, I don't know if we have all white listeners. I know we have plenty of, you know, people of color, BIPOC people on our podcast. We've had not the majority, but 10%, 10-20% of people that we try to bring in other voices. So this voice for me is so important. And so Kevin, the motivation behind telling people that always say, and let's just start from the basics, like, oh, love is colorblind, you know, everything about that book that says how you came out with that bold statement and all the beautiful writing that I've learned so much from, from this book. Before you even go there, I mean, I want to know what really triggered you to say, I got to write a book. Um, so like, we live in the Philadelphia area and every time we'd go to events, we'd, we'd almost always be the only black folks there. Um, like not always, but like there, there'll be times, like I'm, I remember there were times where like we'd go to an event and there'd be three black people there and they all came in my car, you know? And I started talking about it. I started talking about it because it couldn't be ignored in a city as black as Philadelphia to go to a place that's all white. There's more going on there that, than, than just access, you know? There's, there's just, there's, it might not be an intentional, an intentional thing making the space as white as it was, but it would need to be an intentional thing to change that. So I started talking about it. You know, um, it became a, a freaking topic of conversation. And um, a partner of mine, uh, Re Rebecca Hiles, the Frisky Fairy, um, was already well in, you know, well entrenched in educator spaces in terms of like sex and dating and love, uh, relationship coaching and that sort of thing. And at some point they were like, Kev, you're talking about this a lot you should be talking about this in educator spaces where people can hear you. And once I started doing that, it really took off. Like I'd, I'd find myself going to, I'd find myself going to um, 
public uh, love and sex and relationship events and I'd be the only person talking about polyamory or I'd go to polyamory events and be the only person talking about race. And I, I really expected there to be so many other people tackling the topic. But in a lot of cases, I was just the, like one guy sort of fighting a solo fight. Not not anymore, but at the time, it really felt that way. So um, once, the, once me uh, speaking in educator spaces really took off, the natural move was to go and, 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 and write about it. And uh, Love's Not Colorblind came out uh, a little over five years ago. And and people still people still talk to me about it. People still want to hear about it. it. It's still a book that resonates with a lot of folks. And I'm I'm glad because if something I've done, if something I've contributed can help make spaces feel more comfortable, more welcoming, I'm all for it. Right. And so you so you 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 bring up so many topics that I don't even know where to start in this in some of my questions, and so many things about discomfort that we need to step into. And it's so important for us to be able to do that. And and I mean, polyamory teaches conscious communication, but it doesn't teach us about the programming that we've come from that creates such an oppressive and racist system that we're part of. And and so I've I've been aware of that for a while, and yet I'm tr- I've the inclusivity thing of really having to make an attempt instead of being passive is what people need to hear. It's like if you can help like in some examples of how people have had that shift, it would be so helpful for us to be able to see a pathway to someone educating themselves to be able to create and actually be assertive in that way to create inclusivity in their lives, in their understanding, in their deprogramming, in their ability to raise other raise themselves up, raise themselves up to to really see someone for the beautiful value they have as this person that's had to show up in a tougher life and world you know something i'm always telling people is like look at the stuff that you take in look at the stuff that you like look at the media that you're into because i like i know people who who consider themselves well read but when you look at your uh their bookshelf are there any black authors no there are no there aren't you know let me look at the music that you're listening to what uh what what shows are you watching when you're part of an organization, like when you're when you're an organizer for in like polyamory communities, and and really it doesn't have to be limited to polyamory, but when you're an organizer for like polyamory or kink or swing or blues dancing or your local you know you know comedy community, who's in the room when you're making those decisions? Who's in the room when you're deciding what venues to use, what rules to you know what rules to set up, what standards to use? It's like I said, it's not it's not always an active thing. But if I'm doing a if if I'm hosting a party every month and this party is a place where black folks don't go in general, like if this is an area of town where if it's an area, if, if it's a part of town where black folks don't go and black folks don't show up, that's what's going on. If you're hosting something in a place that's inaccessible to people with uh, with disabilities and people with disabilities aren't part of your community, this is the reason why. If I'm hosting something where it, it costs money to get there, or there's parallel parking, or it's inaccessible to to, um, to public transportation, I'm making, I'm making a statement without making a statement, you know? You're making and, it difficult and not accessible. Exactly, like it's not, as, it's not as easy as just hanging up a sign that says, everybody's welcome. If you're not planning around everyone being welcome, 
is everyone really welcome? Well, you talk about in the book, finding those other communities so that you can collaborate together. And especially in the polyamorous space, it seems kind of obvious that if people really want to shed some of their stereotype and get away from the fact that something looks all the same and they want to reach out that they need to find the people that would represent that and lead the way. And so letting other people take leadership you talk about in this book, I think was so important and interesting, knowing how to collaborate and create those those spaces that make people feel like they they can come in. And then you've probably had to take a huge responsibility. I think of the two of you have to just show up at those events, like at the beginning, and I don't know if continually you need to, but that was a, that's a big damn deal. It's bold. Yeah. And like my wife and I, and, and this isn't a value judgment. I'm not trying to prop us up or, or, or put anyone else down, but we're, we're thick skinned enough that there was a lot of nonsense we were able to put up with just to do the things we wanted to do. Like for me, like polyamorous spaces and for my, my wife, both polyamorous spaces and kink spaces. She wanted to go into kink spaces and she was able to sort of withstand a certain level of nonsense before she was able to change those kink spaces in the same way that I was trying to do with polyamory. So how how did you affect that, Antoinette? I mean, or do you think just your thick skin, I mean, just your your heart, your presence, your your acceptances at some level, but also you loud, I hope you let your loud voice as you guys talk about in the book. So I wanted to hear about that. And so... You know, like you were saying, a lot of the same things carry over in, in a variety of spaces. And so for me, part of it was showing up and being loud and calling people out on their nonsense and very much saying, you know, not just smiling and getting along. But once I was a, a fixture in these spaces going, hey, that was that. Yeah, no, that was really, really racist, really, really sexist. We should probably not do that. Thanks. Um, Can you give us some examples? Can you give give me give me an example? It's it's really important. I've read it in the book. I've seen them, but I want you to give them if you don't mind. So at one point there was a kind of a kink collective space um, that had had started here in Philadelphia um, based on a membership model, um, and I was part of the the planning and initial startup of that space. And being that my in my professional experience is as a physical therapist and working with people with disabilities. Um, that became the piece that as they're making these decisions about what we're doing in this space, where this space is located, I was very loud about saying, hi, that's not handicap accessible. And there's, there, there's changes that need to be made to accommodate people who are differently abled. And some of it is stuff that we can't because the building that we were in was a historical building. So there's only so much change that we were allowed to make, but kind of really pushing the group to say, okay, but there's other ways that we can work around this. There's things that we can do. You know, we making sure that the space that we had was something that was accessible to public transportation. And for the limitations in public transportation that were there was saying, okay, well, how can we help mitigate this? And part of it was saying, we can make sure that we have for every event that there's somebody who is willing and able to go to the nearest train station to pick people up and there's people willing to take people to the train station so that when this thing lets out at 2 a.m. and no one wants to be walking um, the several blocks to the nearest train station, that we were organizing things to make this now a feasible thing. Um, and so then when, you know, we kept making this push. And so in our case, you know, the stairs that were in the building was a huge barrier. And then it was like, okay, well, here's some of our options to 
to work around this. And then I volunteered my time and effort to train the rest of the people that work there on how to use the equipment and and was responsible for making sure that we continue that on as our different volunteers came through. This is really the 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 way we learn to understand. And I'm so happy you led that way. And to to just feel like it's not all centered around us. But I love the fact that you you want to bring it to the surface because people that don't take that violate violation, they don't accept that there's that they've been violated. They they don't recognize they violated someone else, and that's the real gaslighting. Is yeah. and that's I think how you put it to some extent. Not yeah, recognizing. The, the the it's a very human reaction to be defensive when you've heard that you've harmed somebody uh or that, that that you're not that you're not being your best self or that you're not presenting the best for whatever whatever organization or event or project you know it's it's very easy to be defensive of those things but it's counterproductive you know um, there have definitely been times where someone is like, I remember like a, a, a partner of mine at one point told me that I had been classist in a way. And my first thought was, no, I haven't, you know, but instead of, but I fought that down and I was like, okay, please explain, please explain what you mean. And they told me about the way that I had been approaching our dating situation and the way that I had been approaching, you know, like the, um, I had been taking taking this person out to places they couldn't afford. Was I paying for it? Yes. But they saw it a different way than I saw it. I saw it as no big deal. I asked you out. I'm paying for it. They saw it as I'm beholden to this person because they're taking me somewhere that I can't naturally pay for for myself. Mm. And now that's something I have to consider. You know, that's something I have to have um, proactive conversations with my partners about. It would have been really easy to just say, you know, screw you, I'm, I'm not doing that. And then that ends the conversation and I don't grow at all. But instead, I listened and I grew. And now it's a non-factor in my current relationships because it was a factor in a previous one. What a great example. I mean, that's why with racism, this is so important because... So how did you overcome that issue? Um, That was, I mean, thankfully, oh, not thankfully, in the case of that one relationship... They had told me this after we had broken up. We had gone out for a drink. We were, we were having a conversation, just sort of reflecting on what it looked like while we were still together. And that was a thing that came up. But now it comes up with um, when I'm when I'm dating someone, I say like, hey, I'm trying to take you out to this place. Is it OK that I take you to this place? Does this look a certain way for you? I'm settled in a lot of my current relationships, like a lot of my current relationships have been on for for several years. So it's not really a concern anymore. But if I started dating somebody new, that would be a conversation we'd have to have so that so that I didn't, you know, um, inadvertently sort of lord some level of wealth over over somebody, you know. I, I never thought about that active way. discussion that happens even for me, because when you start having to unpack things and looking looking at how things impact other people. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, having these discussions about, you know, a lot of us grew up with the, well, the guy is supposed to pay for everything because, you know, that's how things go. And um, or if you asked, you're supposed to pay. And once I started dating people that were at a different socioeconomic level than me, then a lot of that became very much upended. Um, so again, having this discussion with partners that I've had in the past about where they were on the flip side of it, feeling like 
because they were a man, they were supposed to be able to take me to places and pay for things. And then when they couldn't, how that changed how they showed up within our relationship and having to have the discussions about, okay, well, I'm not with you for your money. Um, so, you know, how can we work around these pieces? And so is it okay that I take you out to a place that maybe you couldn't afford? Or do we want to keep it to a level where we're not even spending a whole bunch of money because there's a bunch of things that we could be doing in dating that doesn't require you to go broke (laughs) Um, and changing that perspective. And this is important that we hadn't thought of what the book and what I've learned about. And I love the way you phrased it to give the um, understanding for women who have felt marginalized and anybody who has been misogynistic to them. um, You kind of gave that comparison with people that, that, that defend themselves in that arena. Like, you know, oh, I'm not misogynistic. I'm married. I mean, that was such a great example. Instead of I'm dating a black guy, I have a black friend. Like that tokenization that is so easy for for white people to just feel, not even notice how they deal with unconscious underlying things that really matter. So the education in this area for me was, was, was like, wow, this really gets me into how do I come out of this 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 comfort zone that i'm in of whatever it is whether it's the class thing or whether it's the racist part and so i i do wonder how you like when you're doing some of your lectures and some of the obstacles you face with people and how you've helped them get through that and and how how they have helped themselves is really what i want to know to be i honest. mean a lot of it is a lot of it is um asking around where um when i was doing when i was doing my workshop especially early on like i would i would use a, a personal anecdote i you know i'd say like hey this is something that made me feel uncomfortable in a really racialized way and then somebody else would say oh well hey something similar happened to me and then like then there'd be a white person is, who would be like oh no i did that to somebody and i didn't realize i didn't realize that this was a negative and just it's, it's the reason why I use a lot of personal stories and a lot of analogies uh, in, in Love's Not Colorblind, because like I I don't want like, I, I realize that a lot of my work is me talking about myself, but I don't want it to seem like I'm an isolated person in this. You know, if I talk about race and I get five other people to talk about race, you know that we're all talking about the same thing. We might come from different backgrounds. We right. might come from different areas in the country. But if we're all seeing the same thing the same way, then there is a problem and somebody and, and and you have to acknowledge it, you know, or at least or at least realize that if you decide not to acknowledge it, th- that is a willful thing. You know, it's not a you're, you're not wishing it away. You're choosing to ignore. And it's also, you know, letting people know, like, this isn't going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of moments that are going to be very, very uncomfortable that you're going to need to sit in that discomfort and not just ignore it. Um, and a lot of it is is directly challenging what a lot of people have been raised to believe in. And so, and, but you have to challenge that and you have to sit in that discomfort because that is the point where you will grow. Yeah. And, and also like, you have to you have to like sort of mean you have to maintain it as an active thing you know um i use i use an analogy of suntan lotion i think in the book where um i i i don't i don't typically think about suntan lotion but i keep a bottle in my car because i've got some fairer skin friends who have to consider that on a regular basis 
you know like me and me and and race in america i've got to, i've got to think about that on a constant basis it's it's something that like i'm doing the math in my head when i'm walking in a store who's looking at me like there are times where someone says you know um ask every time i go somewhere and they ask me if i want a receipt i say yes i do want a receipt because the last thing i want is for someone to come over and say hey did you take that thing Wow. You know, whatever it is, it could be a candy bar at, 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 at my local convenience store. Yes, I want a receipt because I, I've i had it happen before where someone has accused me of stealing something that I just finished buying. And knowing that knowing that um, being black in America, me, me being black in America means that if there is a police engagement, there is a higher percentage chance that it will result in my physical harm, my loss of freedom, my loss of life. So I've got to do that math in my head all the time. And at the same time, at the same way, like I'm a cisgender man. I don't have to think about misogyny the same way my wife does, but she does have to think about it. You know, she's got to, she's got to think about it when she walks to her car, you know, when she walks to her car at night, that's something she's got to consider. So I should be considering that, you know, I should be considering that so that I know where I stand, what kind of space I take up in a world where people might be afraid of cisgender men in the same way. So this is so profound and sensitive. And I, and also you're discussing your, the, the book, the LGBTQA IA community and the community of, of, of understanding like you did about disability, how we reach out to other communities that they, that they should, we should be sensitized from and we don't know how to do it. But just stepping out, not always doing it right. I always want to say is what, that's what we're, I'm doing right now. I feel like I probably am not doing it right, but I just wanted to make sure that this is a, an important part of my journey. I'm in a book club with another friend of mine who tries to help us with these kind of issues for white women, dear white women, please come home. So I'm trying to like dismantle my racism and I'm not great for doing it. I didn't even, why did I even say that? I said, why did I even want to say I mean, that? But the idea is that if we don't get uncomfortable, if we don't push ourselves, we are being, we are accomplices to continued systemized racism, you know, racism in this country. And none, and many of us don't want to face that. And the thing about it is like, you're never going to be a hundred percent, you know, you're never like, none of us are ever going to be a hundred percent in any brand of privilege that we hold. We're never going to be what like the, 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 the 100% best ally possible all the time. You know, there are going to be, there's going to be setbacks. There are going to be times where you say something wrong. There's going to be some times where you make, make mistakes. The, 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 the goal is to try to push back the defensiveness when, when encountered with that. And, and try to learn and try to do better with it. Um, like I've got, I've got, I've got trans friends who are always talking about their, um, like when it comes to like being misgendered by way of pronouns or something like that. Like, um, uh, my friend, my, my friend Bex, my friend Bex, uh, of the Dildorks, um, he was saying how if somebody misgender, if somebody misgenders him, the, 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 the move is to just fix it and move on. But instead, you have people who were like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I misgendered you. Let me apologize a thousand times and tell you about how hard it is for me to figure out genders because of this background that I have. And now you're stretching out this uncomfortable space. And now they become the victim. <laughs> yeah. And now you're you're you're, stre you're stretching out this victimized, uncomfortable space when really you should have just corrected yourself and moved on. 
you know, that's the part where it shows the real allies, which is we all make mistakes. We're people. None of us are infallible. But if you make a mistake, you recognize you made a mistake and then you don't make it again. (laughs) Yeah. You fix it and you get better. You try harder next time. Right. Well, this is such value. Have you have you felt that you have impact uh, your surrounding your community with your book? What what do you what 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 can you say that you uh, that you check in as a win uh, because of that book? So, um, it's hard to see. It's hard to see. Uh, you can't really see it in the background if you had the video feed here. Uh, but my wife and I we 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 appeared in a, a local newspaper, um, and our polyamory community started filling up like over the course of a couple of months, we brought in hundreds of new members and most of them were people of color. And just knowing that our visibility and accessibility made us made a difference. That was, that was really, that was, that was really validating. And then I used to joke around there. I used to make a joke. Like if I was, if I was doing a workshop in Los Angeles, I'd say, well, if Philadelphia has a polyamory event tonight, it's all white because I'm here in Los Angeles. Ha ha ha. <laughs> I can't say that anymore. The organizers of our local community are, 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 are black folks and not just like the organizers of our local black and poly chapter, like the sort of more global, more mainstream um, community is, is full of black folks. The events have several people of color. You can't just count them with a cursory gla- a cursory glance as you walk in the room and like i know i didn't do all of that myself but i like to think that i helped start a conversation well, i like to think that my visibility helped some people uh you instigated find resources and community that they were looking for absolutely fantastic i mean i have that, to that, read the book yeah well. and the, and uh poly role models which is what you you go by in your and your e-letters and, and is that your your mem- you know, your membership is black and poly or poly role models? What's the membership piece? If people want to know more about you guys. Oh, I mean, my, my, my social media is all is all poly role models. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be a um, a blog that I ran, poly role models, where it was uh, me asking people sort of what they do well with their polyamory, what they do poorly. How do you rebound from your poly uh, from the things you do poorly? And most importantly, what self-identities are important to you and how do those impact your polyamory? So I'd always get people coming in saying like, hey, I'm black and this is how it affects my polyamory or I'm bisexual or I'm a mother, I'm sober, I'm a nudist and how that impacted their polyamory. It, it was a, a really great showcase for diversity and polyamory, but I haven't run that blog in a bunch of years. I just keep the name because I like the name. <laughs> well, you are a poly role model. So I just loved saying it because both of you, you have really served that in, in your communities, but also for us to say, you know, this is the kind of thing that when you learn conscious communication and just letting people show up and also using your voices in the way you have, this is what we all need to learn to do with kindness and with and with conviction. You know, and and knowing our boundaries and knowing where we can be more fluid and 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 allowing, and these are the things that I just. It's interesting. I think I re- recently heard uh, one of Kevin's interviews about someone asked you about toxic about monogamy, toxic monogamy, and I love the way you talked about that because polyamory is something that opens up that consciousness of it. it ha- you, if you're going to become that, you're going to have to start learning how to negotiate, oh, yeah. how, how to, right? How to not be possessive of owning someone else or thinking you know everything. 
Like the the people people enter into polyamory thinking that the tool set that you need is about learning how to date and learning how to pick up people or you know learning where to meet folks. The tool set you need for polyamory is emotional literacy, the ability to communicate without you know without accusation or defensiveness, and scheduling. Really, so much scheduling. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how do you do you doing that? With kids are at this stage with teens. That's tweens. They're not driving. How are you doing that now? Google Calendar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're we uh we're we're really good at figuring out who's gonna be who's gonna be doing stuff with the kids and who's gonna be doing stuff uh in in, in uh out in the dating space. Like, you know, if I'm going out tonight, Antoinette's doing stuff with the kids, and if I, if she's going out, I'm doing stuff with the kids, and Sometimes we got to figure out how to do stuff with the kids together. We've also been very fortunate that we have, both of us have partners who have been involved with our kids um, at varying levels. Um, So there are times when we have family dates (laughs) where it's like, okay, I'm going to show up with my kids and you bring your kids and we're going to take all the kids to a playground. Okay. I'm, feeling like they can't hear yeah you kicked uh, we hear you can you hear us yeah we we hear you but we somehow lost your video feed which we'll we'll edit this little part out yeah that's what you said that different partners are taking the kids and you have to and you do a lot of figuring i'm that's actually a google calendar with your partners i guess with the metamors too i mean everybody is everybody on that calendar i'm curious now to a certain extent yes (laughs) Oh, oh yeah that's amazing I mean, just out curiosity. I mean, how many relationships each of you have to 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 juggle with all this stuff? I mean, that's incredible. Um, I know that, like, aside from my wife, like, there are three local partners who I have like uh, a a really tight relationship with. Uh, I've been seeing e- each for you know almost uh, like four plus years, almost you know almost six years in the case of one. Um, but like also i don't sort of limit myself if if i meet someone and we have a connection cool you know like we've got to figure out the logistics of how we fit into each other's right. lives but I, I don't one of the things i love about polyamory is that i don't feel like i need to manufacture a boundary between me and somebody if we have a, a connection that's so manufacture cool. a boundary guys, i love that are so inspiring i feel like i'm learning so much about poly from you too You've just done it so naturally how it's evolved. Uh, is there Are there any other areas that you feel like you would like to convey to our audience that are going to be open answers, like getting older, anything about poly around getting older? Actually, we did an interview called Polyamorous Elders, a book that just came out by Catherine, Kathy Labriola. Um, oh, yeah. Kathy Labriola is, is, uh, is, is dope. Um, yeah. anything, anything about this stage of life or anything that you'd like to make sure you convey you know, that we haven't asked you or you haven't said um, this evening? I, w- I would love to see I would love to see more more people of like of uh um, I don't know what the 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 the, the chill way to put it but like ad- advancing years uh people of a certain age I'd love to see more people of all ages engage in polyamory just just because it's not just for the young yeah like yeah it shouldn't just be it shouldn't just be a playground for the young it shouldn't just be and like and i'm i'm in my 40s you know and i'm i'm moving rapidly towards my 50s and i can't imagine you know setting this down for any reason right so more involvement more ages absolutely 
Wonderful. And and how about your contact information? So the same way, Poly Role Models on all the social media, if anybody wants to reach out to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm Poly Role Models on Instagram and, and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you know, and yeah, that that's the easiest way to find me. And the book is available in all wherever books are sold? Uh, yes. And also um, either on Amazon or my website, kevinapatterson.com. Uh, okay. I also co-wrote a series of queer polyamorous superhero books that I love so much. They're really good. Yeah. Oh, and so I'm, I'm always trying to, like Love's Not Colorblind is my important book, but the For Hire series, my, uh, my superhero books, those are the fun books. Awesome. Well, what are those? Tell, so tell, tell us, us a about bit those. about those. Yeah. Um, myself and Alana Phelan, who uh, who worked professionally under the name uh, the uh, the Polyamorous Librarian, we're we're superhero geeks. You know, we're comic book nerds. So we ended up writing, sort of creating a superhero universe that uh that sort of allowed more characters to play. Where if there's a love triangle, the love triangle isn't the source of conflict. The the love triangle, you know, like the, it's the the one to one. The 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 one to one stressors of being in a relationship. That's the conflict, not just the fact that three people are into each other. That's fine, you know. The the secrets that they keep from each other. That's the problem. Wow. <laughs> into a comic. I love it. I'm gonna definitely get. And, take and those check. are available too. I mean, we can get those. Yeah, yeah. They're they're on. They're all on Amazon. They're um they're on on Audible as audiobooks as well. Um, they're all pros. They're, so like they're they're not like graphic novels, but they're all available. Wonderful. Fantastic. This Good. Is, this uh, has been a delight. It's been an inspiration to to hear you, uh, Antoinette and Kevin. Really inspiring. We have taken a lot of notes from this, and uh, we just. Just just inspiration, really, truly. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you. But anyway, thank you for coming on uh, the Open Nesters podcast. Uh, we will broadcast this pretty soon, I think, right? In the next month, sure. Next month or so. As I said, Tessa, this has been an inspiration from so, so many aspects. Well, when we listen is when we grow, and sometimes it's not from the things we know. I mean, it's really, that's where the most knowledge and growth comes from. So discomfort Absolutely. and what they were saying about, you know, what impacts other people listening in ways that is not diminishing anyone. How do we include them? How do we look at ourselves to to overcome ways of, of, of opening and, 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 and creating more spaces for everyone, whether it's not just in poly life, yeah, for me, the the real points were about the poly life that they lead. You know, for them, poly was non-negotiable, and that is um, a lot of a lot of poly couples had to sometimes come to head to head and talk about is it really for us? For them, it wasn't, and that's something that is very determined, very set, and know what they want. And you know, they don't ask permission from their kids, and that is the exact thing that uh, that I've learned from that. I mean, we never ask permission from our kids; we let our lifestyle the way they are, right? Yeah, and the kids will come along when we do it with honesty and integrity. And and so the idea that this is actually a different kind of interview than we usually do, because Kevin and Antoinette really are far from open nesting. And I thought that it was an important perspective because. You know, who, how are we conveying who we are? Um, you know, the kids will pick up if we're not really having integrity. And they, they, I mean, if people are cheating, 
you know, they, they would pick that up too. So who are, who are we as showing up the most in the most brave way we can to be ourselves and deprogram, like Antoinette says, some of the things that we have believed? And I have never thought about it from their side, from, from, from being uh, poly in a black community and being all-inclusive. It is so correct, and I'm so much more aware today about that. And, you know, this has been a learning for me over the last few years about just, you know, bringing black authors, reading black authors, listening to the idea that that we are we are some we gaslight people when we say that we have black friends when we say, oh, I'm reading that now. Like, I just want to be able to listen more. And so this this opportunity for me was great because it, it gave us a chance to ask questions and listen more. And I hope that that's what it gave you, a chance to listen more deeply for it's okay to feel discomfort, but it's not okay to be paralyzed and stay the same. And you'll probably recommend the book to anybody. If not Absolutely. To only, right? Love is Not Colorblind is as a must to read. It's a well, little book and it'll tell you stories and help you deeply understand even that point about misogyny, like I made that point, I want to say it again, is that, you know, a man will say, oh, I'm not a misogynist. My wife, you know, I have a wife. Right. And and so many people think that they, they just blow it off. But how somebody really feels, just like Kevin has talked about his wife, you know, you have to think about what is it someone else may feel. So take an extra moment to ask that question and make sure that they're comfortable, even if you're not comfortable. I tell you, Tessa, I will be listening and allow myself uh, the discomfort to ask the question uh, to understand better what I really don't understand, and that is really opening my eyes and ears by listening to Kevin and Antoinette. Awesome. I think that's what we all need to do. Learn for what we have no idea about, and there's so much to learn. So that's what we're doing on the Open Nesters podcast, and we thank you for sharing and for helping us grow to be the top of the 10% of relationship podcasts by Good Pods. And we are also wanting to invite you to our social media. Follow us on Instagram and our closed Facebook page where we can discuss these kind of great, um, wonderful, wonderful interviews and make our discussions richer. And don't forget to visit our website, theopenesters.com, double in the middle, S at the end, dot com. We are available on all podcast platforms, and please, please subscribe. So without any further ado, I'm going to say goodbye first. <laughs> so we will see you on the, or hear well, you. Well, <laughs> this is Amir. And this is Tessa. And we will see you on the next episode. Ciao. have been listening to the open nesters podcast a production of kiwi publishing and media executive producer tessa crone music by yoni avi patat audio engineering by lucid sound web design and blogs pj ewing this podcast is available on all podcast platforms to learn more about each episode and guest please visit us at theopennesters.com. For questions or to be a guest on our podcast, email tessa at theopennesters.com.